well, thank you for having me. Uh, it's really kind of cool to uh, to be here. Um, I was listening to to Scott Smith when I was still in law school, and so uh, this is a really cool uh, experience. And so um, <clears throat> last week we were uh, we talked about kind of just really the the overview of deal structuring of uh, compliance issues with the uh, SEC when you're raising capital from investors. And today, and I, I kind of want to move through quickly because we've got a lot to cover. But today, I want to go through what it looks like on a real estate deal. Um, some of the questions that you might need to, you you know, your attorney might need to know, and what I would need to know for structuring your deal, pre, you know, preparing your documents, and um, you know, uh, representing you on the on your deal. So, as Liz mentioned um, about uh, maybe almost two years ago now, I guess. Um, I was I was in a position where I was just I was doing hundreds of deals, um, almost a deal a day. And uh, a lot of these deals ended up, especially in real estate, um, after getting experience, you know, looking at hundreds of deals, different deal structures, different deal types. Um, I started I started putting together um, just kind of a, a system to where we can efficiently produce uh, produce documents that if it looked like the same kind of deal deal structure, of course, we'd still have to, you know, customize it, make it, make it specific to your, you know, the specific deal, <clears throat> but the overall deal structure um, could have the same, you know, the same provisions, the same, uh, you know, uh, the same wording, everything else like that. And so I started putting together this system and, um, and now I'm, I'm kind of at the, hopefully at the tail end of that. Uh, I'm still developing, still working with other attorneys to, to build it out and to, uh, you know, just to, you know, provide more value to, to my clients. But um, so today I wanted to go through uh, one of the questionnaires that I provide to my clients. If you come, came to me and said, hey, you know, we got a real estate deal, um, you know, we're looking to raise and, you know, raise capital in two to three months, I would send you this questionnaire and, we'd, and you'd fill it out. I wanted to walk through that today because it has a lot of valuable information and I think will help structure our understanding of um, of how to structure a deal and what information you would need to know. So, okay. So when you go in, you'll, you'll first start off with the contact information. So this is what you'll, you'll initially see. Um, and then because I've already filled it out, anytime I hit continue, it's just going to go back to the, um, to the end. But typically if you're filling, filling this out, um, it'll just, uh, it'll take you to the next section. So you'll fill out those questions. But in this case, because I've already filled it out, uh, it'll just take us to the end of the end of the questionnaire. So it'll look like this, but it'll be helpful because we can move through it faster. So the first questions we have is, is what, what the deal structure is. And so last week we talked about several different ways to structure a deal. Um, obviously we have, um, you know, identified deals. We have blind pool funds. We have fund of funds or feeder funds. Um, however you want to, uh, however you want to say that. So, um, so we, we start off, my, my first question is what's your deal structure? Are you doing an identified deal? Are you going to be doing a, a non-specified or, or semi-specified fund? A, a semi-specified fund is one where you maybe have a deal identified, but you want to continue purchasing more assets, you know, that you maybe haven't identified. So that would be a what we call a semi-specified fund. And then, um, and so uh, if somebody just wants to to raise their hand and, and we'll go through this um, and, and just kind of go through, because there's more options here. So if we say... Um, if we say no, this won't be a, a semi-specified fund. Another question will pop up and ask, is this a feeder fund? Last week, we talked about a feeder fund. How I typically use feeder funds is if there's somebody who has good capital connections, but they don't necessarily want to manage the, the actual property, uh, we might structure it like a feeder fund in order to, um, to avoid violating uh, the Securities and Exchange Act. So this question, you know, so we'll, you know, this question will, will pop up. 
so we'll, we'll go ahead and say that this is a fund. Um, and so, um, and we'll say it's not an opportunity zone, um, but if it is an in an opportunity zone, you know, there's, there's different ways we can structure that. Um, and, and I, I don't want to make this an opportunity zone lecture. There's uh, a guy on here, Patrick Shigru, who would be uh, much better at this than I would, but um, there, there are different ways to structure the opportunity zone. And so if you are planning on doing that, uh, we can talk through that um, at some other time. So we're going to say that this is a fund. So we're going to be structuring a fund, which basically um, one of the, one of the nice things about a fund, and, and it's not you know it's not right for everybody, but the, the nice thing about a fund is that you can always you know you can you have more flexibility. So instead of finding a deal, rushing to get the capital, rushing to close it, a fund you can usually uh, start raising capital over a period of time, and as you find as you find assets you can then start purchasing those assets without worrying about where the money's gonna come from, if you can close on time, et cetera. Um, so the issuers, so the next the next uh, set of questions is the issuer uh, issuer's information. The issuer is the company that is gonna be raising capital and why it's called the issuer is because they're, they're issuing securities. And so when I ask what's the issuer's information, think of the company that is gonna be issuing the shares, raising capital from, uh, from investors and, uh, and they're going to, um, yeah, they're going to issue the securities. Now, I have some information in here um, that explains what the issuer is and how I typically set it up. And I, I showed this in, in a graph uh, last week, but how I typically set it up is we have the issuing company and it's usually set up as a manager managed company. And then we have uh, a management entity and then within the and the management entity manages the issuing company. And then underneath the management company, we have class A members and class B, uh, class B members. Class A members are the investors. Class B members are the sponsors. And the reason why I separate those out, uh, I, I don't know if I, I talked about this last time, but the reason why we have these different uh, class class members is because the, the investors are going to get uh, the, let's assume that it's a 70-30 split. The investors are going to get that 70-30 split or that 70% of, of all distributions. The sponsors are going to get the 30% of distributions. Um, I didn't go too much in depth, I don't think, last week, but um, typically the Class B members, I like to have them uh, hold their, their Class B shares in a separate entity from the management entity. And the reason why is because it just separates out the liability between the management entity that's going to be doing all the work and kind of accepting all the liability and uh, and the class B shares, which takes the promote, right? Or earns the promote. And that promote is that 30%. And that's gonna be the bulk of your, uh, of the income or the the, the value that you, that you receive um, in a deal. And so you wanna, so again, the way I set it uh, structured is I, is I, I separate those two, excuse me. And so the issuer's information, I, I just put Solinsky Capital Fund here. I said, it's a Delaware entity. Um, and you can you can also select whether it's an LLC or a limited partnership. In in most cases, uh, especially in real estate deals, um, I prefer it being set up in an LLC. Uh, there might be some consideration as to why you you set up a limited partnership, um, but typically my the limited partnerships I I usually see only in in specific deals like uh, oil and gas or specific asset type deals like oil and gas. Um, sometimes if you know, sometimes if I'm, I'm working with a, a foreign investor who's coming in and doing a syndication, sometimes they prefer a limited partnership because, uh, for example, I don't think Canada recognizes the, the LLC, but for the most part, it's almost always going to be an LLC. But just know that that's, that's an option here is that you can select that it's a limited partnership. 
then we'll go to the management entity. And we already talked about how the manager is the one who manages everything and they take care of every, you know, they, uh, they're the ones who, who run the day to day within the management entity, the members of that management entity. And I always recommend that the management entity be an LLC, not an, an individual. And the reason why is because again, that management entity is going to be doing, or the manager is going to be doing all the work on that deal. And so when they, uh, you know, so they're probably going to be the one who accepts the most liability uh, for, for the LLC. Now, in my documents, I provide for indemnification of, uh, of the manager. So in other words, if the manager accidentally, you know, messes up or, or you know, does something wrong that gets the, the company in trouble or something, the, you know, if somebody sues the manager, the company, the, the issuer will indemnify the, the manager. But nonetheless, we still want that management entity to be an LLC or, or some sort of entity that protects the individual from individual liability. So that's how we set that up. Uh, here again, I just call it Solinsky Capital. It's formed in Delaware. Now, one thing that we also want to do is, um, again, in my documents, I provide for uh, arbitration. What I say is, hey, if there's any disputes between investors and yourself or between the company or the, or the manager, um, we don't want to just rush to rush the litigation, right? We want to kind of, you know, we want to take some steps to to mitigate the risk of litigation. And so first, the first step is um, is arbitration. Actually, it's it's mediation and then arbitration. And uh, but if you're going to do arbitration, we say, hey, you, you got to pick a city and state uh, to do arbitration. in. And usually it's the city or state that the manager uh, or the majority of, of the members of the manager are in. Uh, so in this case, I'm just going to say Jackson, Wyoming. The next part of, um, and this is all related to, to the management, um, the next part is the sponsor's information. So we, um, you know, we're just going to say that uh, who, so basically we want, you know, in this management entity, who are the members of this manager, right? Th that's usually the sponsors uh, or that's those that's defined as a, as a sponsor. And so who are the sponsors? Who are the ones who are going to be controlling the deal? And the reason why we want to know not only their names, but also the uh, percentage uh, information. And I believe Seth Seth Bradley spoke about this on his his um, on his uh, talk. But essentially, it is um, you, the the SEC has has guidance for what information needs to be disclosed, and they do state specifically that they they want to know not only who's going to be controlling the deal, how much do how much control do they have, which is why we ask for the percentage, but they also want to know the bio the bio. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I, I used to ask for for um, for clients to to fill out the bio in here, but it, it tended to just be kind of a, a daunting process. And so now we we uh, work with it outside of the system, but we do need the the sponsor's bio as uh, as per SEC guidance. So in here, I'm saying, okay, Steven Slowinski, I own fifty percent, and then John Doe, my partner also owns 50%. And for most of these things, you don't have to put the actual percentage sign, um, just kind of the way the system works. Uh, you just have to put the put the number. And then here's the, um, I am going to jump into this because we're going to go to the fee section. Okay, here we go. Um, so typically, if you're going to, uh, if you're going through this, um, through this from, you know, from the beginning, um, you would see, a, you would see an instruction page right before you get to this page. Um, and it would give you uh, all the all the typical fees that you you might see in a, in a real estate deal. You can have whatever fees that you want. Um, you can come up. I've, I've seen all kinds of fees. Um, 
but uh, but the most basic ones are, are the acquisition fee, the asset management fee. Uh, if you're doing uh, either a heavy value add or if you're doing a development deal, you might see a construction uh, construction management fee or developer fee. Actually, con construction fee and developer uh, developer fee might be two two separate things. But these are all things that you can you can charge. And last week I showed uh, a um, I showed a, 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 a um, <laughs> underwriting model that kind of went through a lot of the fees and you could see how those fees can really add value, could really add some income to your deal or income to the management entity. And so, and that's also a good point. So the fees typically go to the management entity, right? Cause we said that the promote that 30% goes to the class B members, which are still the sponsors, but we, we want the sponsors to be different than the management entity. So, but the management entity gets the fees. And so um, these are, there are, all, there are all kinds of fees that you can charge. And of course, if you want to, um, you know, if you want to ask about what fee, you know, what, uh, what kind of fees, what the market, you know, what, what the market is charging, uh, just, you know, feel free to ask. But in this case, I set up the fees to be the acquisition fee, uh, which is going to get paid to the manager. And uh, it's going to be 2% of the purchase price of each property. And uh, we want to know when when the fee will be paid. And uh, we're going to say at the closing of each property. Now, remember, this is a fund. So you're going to get an acquisition fee for or you can get an acquisition fee for every property. So we want to specify that it's not just a property. So for example, in a syndication, we might change this to at the closing of the property. And uh, in this case, we're going to say it's it's for each property that you purchase. And uh, and those little words matter, right? I mean, it's it seems like such a small thing, but to say, you know, go from the to each and I don't want to get too too deep into uh, into legal theory around contract construction, but uh, that it's a very important distinction here, right? So uh, it's going to be two percent of the purchase price of each property at the closing of each property, and in here I I went through um, other fees that we that I won't go through all of it, but as you can see, we've got the asset management fee, a refinance fee, a disposition fee, and a property management fee. Now. The property management fee, um, the reason why I have it in here uh, is because in my scenario, I am saying that I'm going to be uh, managing the properties, maybe through an affiliate entity, uh, another entity that I own, but uh, I am going to collect the, the property management fee. So um, if you don't have, a, if you're planning on outsourcing that, you don't have to put that in here. But uh, for the sake of example, I'm going to put that um, I am going to collect a, a property management fee and uh, it's going to be 4% of gross revenues. And so we talked about this last week about the, the uh, we, we touched a little bit on the pros and cons of 506B versus 506C. And um, again, the, the main thing is that with 506B, you can take uh, up to 35 non-accredited investors, but you can't advertise. And, and there are, I mean, I can, I can spend a long time just talking about the advertising aspect of like what consider what, what constitutes advertising, what doesn't um, there's a lot to do with social media. What, if I, if I'm in the middle of a deal, can I post on social media just about my company, about who I am, what I do, et cetera. I mean, we can get into the weeds with that. Uh, and it's so deal specific too that, that oftentimes it, you know, sometimes just requires uh, a conversation with me before you, you post something, but so that's the benefit of 506B. 506C, the great thing is you can advertise. You don't have to worry about that. The downside is that you can only accept accredited investors, which is fine because most deals close 
because of accredited investors. Um, but you also have to take steps to verify that they're they're accredited investors. And this has actually become very easy over the years um, because there are several companies that provide verification services for you know pretty uh, pretty inexpensively. Um, and and the nice thing is that the SEC has said that, and this is a somewhat recent uh, development, that once they're verified, you know, once that verification is good for up to five years. So, um, so that's kind of the benefit of, of a 506 team. Now, I also talked about last week how the SEC very recently um, basically proposed or, uh, you know, adopted a new rule, which basically says you can do a 506B and a 506C on the same deal. And I, I mean, you can imagine the benefit of this is that if you had friends and family that maybe didn't qualify as accredited investors, but you also needed to advertise or, or generally solicit, um, for example, making cold calls, hitting people up on, on LinkedIn, things of that nature, you, you needed both in order to close your deal. Now you can do it. it. You used to not be able to do it. You used to have to, um, the, the SEC basically had this laundry list that said, hey, if you're raising capital for uh, for something that's going to be in the same, you know, for the same project or the same financing uh, scheme, then you can't go from a 506B to a 506C. But now they're saying you can, which is really awesome. Um, there are some there are some specific things that you have to do in order to comply with that, in order to to rely on that exemption. Uh, I call it the integration exemption. Um, but uh, but again, you know, we can talk about that if you are wanting to do this. But I give it as an option in in the questionnaire. And so uh, the minimum minimum and maximum offering amounts, I explain the difference between a minimum uh, a minimum offering amount. And, and by the way, if I'm going too fast, please just uh, please stop me. Um, since I'm sharing my screen, I probably I, I don't want to click into a chat in case there's anything personal there. But um, if, if you guys could just raise your hand on the screen, uh, I'll, I'll see it and uh, and I will uh, go ahead and slow down or, or uh, answer any questions uh, while we're going through this. But the uh, the minimum offering amount, uh, not every not everything is uh, not every deal needs a minimum offering amount. But let's say that you want to. Uh, well, let me let me kind of back up and explain what this is. I, I have it here. But um, the minimum offering amount is is the very minimum that you need in order to make a deal work, as opposed to in the maximum offering, which is just what you would like to have on a deal. So I'll give you a couple examples um, on, on an identified deal where you already have a property identified, you already have the underwriting and you know how much you need to make that deal work. Um, you may not need a minimum offering. You may just have a maximum offering and, and you would still you still might wanna buffer that maximum offering with a few hundred thousand dollars or a couple hundred thousand dollars or something in case something changes or you or a contingency comes up that you need that additional additional money for. But let's say you're doing um, let's say you're doing a development deal, uh, and you have multiple phases. This might be one example where you say, "Hey, at least to get to phase two, we need, um, you know, we we need at least a million dollars, right? Um, and if we don't hit a million dollars, then we know that we can't we can't get this off the ground. But if we do hit a million dollars, we can get through at least phase two. And if we have to sell it at that point, at least we can sell it at a profit, right? Um, but so we need at least a million. But we need five, we, you know, we meet, we need three to five million dollars, let's say three million dollars to make the deal work. And so that would be the maximum amount. Um, you often see this, right? Rather, I often see this on funds. Um, this, this, you know, the minimum offering amount uh, occurs with funds or even heavy, heavy value add projects where you're saying, hey, you know, we want to put in a lot of work into this apartment. 
Um, so we need at least this much, but we want to raise at least this much. Um, I personally like having a minimum and maximum um, just because it gives me a, a, a nice buffer, um, you know, in, in the deal. Um, so in this case, I did say I, you know, we are going to have a minimum amount. And, um, and by the way, it's, it's important to say, and this is kind of a, a legal, you know, in the weeds kind of, kind of a thing, but um, we, it is important to know that this is what's considered a best uh, best efforts offering. Um, there are several different kinds of, uh, of of types of offerings, including an all or nothing, or uh, uh, I forgot the exact term. It's some or nothing. But essentially, you know, when you're working with broker dealers, if if you're going to bring in a broker dealer, uh, they have specific requirements. For example, if you say, "Hey, this is an all or nothing deal," what you're saying is we either raise all of it. Or we were, you know, we we raise all of it. Or if we can't raise all of it, then we give all the money back, right? And so that money stays in a segregated account. It has to stay in a segregated account before you can break in impounds. Uh, but we always set up, at least for for most. I shouldn't say we always. Um, so, anyways, this is a best efforts uh, best efforts offering, so that you know, if you if you raise a certain amount, you can still deploy capital. You don't have to give invest investors the, their money back. However, and this will will go down to will go down to a couple other questions. Um, first, what is the minimum offering amount? Again, because this is a fund, I'm going to say it's a million dollars. And this is where, where, where I was getting to. If you are planning on deploying capital, in other words, if you are going to keep the money in a segregated account, um, you want to, uh, we want to disclose that. We want to make sure investors know that, hey, I will be deploying capital. But if you are planning on deploying capital prior to, to the, the minimum amount being raised or even the maximum amount about being raised, for example, if you, if you, just want a maximum amount raised, you still want to say, uh, you still want to uh, let investors know that you do you do plan on deploying capital prior to that amount being raised. Because if you aren't able to raise enough to meet your business objectives, then you will have to give give investors their money back. However, if you've already deployed it, for example, if you if you used it to reimburse uh, attorney fees or accounting fees or or anything like that, then you know, investors have to know that they that they may not get the full amount of their money back, or they have to wait longer um, while you liquidate the company and sell the assets in order to get their their money back. Right? That's that's really important to know in a deal, and that's something that um, you know not not everybody thinks through when they're just trying to raise capital, right? And and they've got this business plan, they take capital, they deploy it, um, but you know if they run into an issue, what are you going to do? So we have to disclose those those. Uh, you know, what could happen in that case. So do you want to deploy capital uh, prior to raising the minimum offering amount? I'm going to say no, but you could also say yes. And if I, and if you say yes, and this is uh, specific to, to purchasing assets, I do ask, are you planning on purchasing any assets with, with the funds? If you deploy it before you raise the minimum amount, because again, the minimum amount, especially is the amount that you need to, to meet your objectives. So are you going to deploy that right before you have enough to, to know whether you're going to actually meet your business objectives? And uh, if you say yes, then uh, again, we have to disclose, we have to make certain disclosures in the PPM, letting people know, hey, if we don't raise this amount, we might have to sell, we might have to liquidate the assets we do purchase in order to get your money back. Um, I'm going to say no for now, though, um, just for um, sake of this example. And then we also, uh, you don't always, um, well, depends on the on the type of deal. Um, there are several things like a, like an evergreen fund um, where you don't need a, a deadline. But, uh, you know, let's say that you're raising a fund uh, and you, um, you need to raise at least a million dollars. 
typically we want to give a date as, as to when we we want to raise that that minimum amount by excuse me um yeah so we want to give we want to give a date um and the reason why is because we you know we want to say hey if we are not able to accomplish our goals we don't just want your money sitting in an account not working for you so we're gonna we're gonna give it back by at least this date so and then finally we got the minimum investment um what is the minimum that investors are required to make in order to become a member of the company we're going to say 50,000 right here, but you can make that whatever. Um, I, I do really recommend you make it higher. I have seen, I have worked on deals where the minimum investment was $5,000. Um, I haven't really seen anything less than $5,000, but um, I, I would recommend doing at doing as high as you can um, because the last thing you want to do is, is deal with dozens of investors with, with little pieces here and there, the, the, you know, the more, the better. Um, but, uh, but also it, it just depends on your, your investor, uh, your investors and what they, what they can afford. And so, uh, do you want to require investors to contribute only a portion of their capital uh, they commit? So this question, uh, this is kind of an interesting one because, um, it, you know, when I, when I first started working on funds, this was a lot more popular, um, now, and we're going to go to another, another section later that we're, we're, uh, we call, uh, truing up, uh, truing up, um, uh, mechanics or true up mechanics. Um, but uh, a lot of times people, we're worried about having their funds. Uh, and actually this is still uh, the case. Uh, if you're doing a fund, uh, you, you know, let's say an investor uh, commits a hundred thousand dollars. They may not want a hundred thousand dollars just sitting there before you can find an asset. And also if you're, if you're charging a preferred return, which we'll talk about uh, in the next section, if you're charging a preferred return, you may not want all a hundred thousand dollars to accrue or excuse me, you, you may not want the preferred return to begin to accrue while their money is just sitting there doing nothing. So what you could do is instead of saying, hey, give me all $100,000 investor, what you can say is, hey, investor, give me 10, 20%. And, uh, and if later you want, and, and when we find a property, um, then we're going to call your capital. We're going to call the, the rest of the, the remaining of your capital, right? And, um, and then if you don't give us your capital, then there's going to be penalties uh, because you already committed it. We already trusted you. We went forward with our business plan, believing you. Um, but now, again, if you don't commit your capital or if you don't give us your capital when we call it, then, uh, you know, then, then there's, we're going to levy pen penalties on you. So you can always say, you know, if that's, if that's what you want to do, you can say yes. And then the, then the question will be, what percentage do you want? Um, and we'll just say 10%. Again, this isn't as popular um, as it used to be. Most people, um, most people are, you know, either take the full amount or they they don't uh, start raising until they find at least a couple properties. At least that's been uh, what I've been seeing. Uh, at least as far as uh, this year goes, uh, that's been kind of popular. So this again, this used to be really doing capital calls used to be really popular. Now people see it as a as a uh, as just a, a difficult administrative burden. So I, I'm just seeing it less and less. But that is an option. Um, then do you want to have different investor classes? And what this means is essentially, let's say that you have uh, a couple big investors who want to invest a million dollars. Everybody else is going to invest fifty, sixty thousand dollars, or whatever they're going to do. Um, but you want to give those those bigger investors uh, different voting rights, maybe different uh, different economic benefits, things of that nature. And so you can have different classes, right? And really, it doesn't just have to be voting and economic uh, benefits. That, that can be different. Um, I've seen uh, I've seen somewhere, uh, for example, that there was one 
uh, one fund that was doing short-term rentals. And they said, Hey, if you're, if you're a class A one investor and you give us, you know, a hundred thousand, 200,000, uh, we're going to give you, you know, a free, a free couple nights at, at the Airbnbs that we, that we purchase. Right. So you can always do, uh, just kind of fun things like that to incentivize investors to, to pay more or to invest more. So in this case, we're going to say, yeah, we, we've got three different investor classes. Now, typically, and this doesn't it isn't always the case. You can always base um, what makes it what makes a class A member a class A A one member versus A two. You can always change that up, but typically, it is based off of the investment amount. And so, I ask uh, down here, what's the minimum to become a class A one member? And just so you know how this is structured, typically, the more you invest, the higher. Uh, excuse me, the, the, that's the, the priority of number, right? So if you're class A1, that typically means that you've invested more or you have a higher priority uh, than investor two, than investor three, et cetera. So in this case, how I have this set up is that investor, uh, investor or in, anyways, a class A1 member has to invest at least $150,000 to become a class A1 member. Class A2 has to invest $100,000 and class A3 has to uh, invest $50,000. Now remember, this is the minimum that we had already stated up here. And uh, it seems redundant, but sometimes, um, but the reason why I ask it kind of twice uh, is, is because sometimes if you say no, we don't have a, we don't have an investor class, then this is the only amount that we're gonna base our, base our, um, our, um, our documents off of. So um, yeah, so we still want the minimum investment for, for, the, for class A3. All right, so the business plan. And uh, this this part's always fun. So um, we're going to ask what kind of investments uh, it will, will we will we uh, excuse me got tongue tied will we be investing multiple uh, assets? And uh, in this case, because it's a fund, we're going to say yes. Again, if it's an identified deal where we're buying just one, um, then we're going to say you know obviously no. Um, but in this case, we are going to buy multiple assets. And the cool thing is too, we can we can you know, we can select all the other, you know, as many as we want here, right? Or as many as we are actually going to invest in. Now, ideally, uh, it wouldn't be all of these because it would be really difficult, I think, to do, uh, you know, a multifamily deal, a mobile home deal, and a real estate development deal because they all are different. They all have different risk parameters. So investors might be, you know, kind of maybe the, maybe the hungrier, hungrier, uh, less risk averse investors want real estate development deals. Whereas the, um, you know, people who are, who want to rely more on uh, steady income might, might want mobile homes. So I, you know, so theoretically in a, in a fund um, you would probably only have a couple, a couple asset types and it would be geared towards the type of investors that you're going to be bringing on. Are they wanting more income? Are they wanting more appreciation? Um, and that's how you're going to decide, um, what assets to invest in. Or again, I mean, if you're already in the market, if you're already taking down deals, then it'll be just based off of the actual deals that you do. Now, we're, I, I am still adding to this. Um, for example, you don't see industrial here. Um, I am working on, uh, I'm working with a company that that's doing an, an industrial fund now. So, you know, once, once I add those to, to my, uh, to the system, we'll, we'll add that, but we're constantly updating this, but right now this is what, what we've got here. So I'm just going to say we'll do multifamily and self-storage. And then because this is a fund, um, and, and I'm not going to go all the way back to the beginning, but because this is a fund, um, if 
if we had answered that this was an identified deal, um, these some of these questions would be different. But in, in a fund, typically you have investment periods, you have holding periods, and then you have a wind-up period. And the investment period is um, is as it sounds. It's the it's the number of years you're going to take to invest all your capital. And so um, typically this is between one to two years. Um, but if you're going to be raising capital for an extended period of time, maybe you have a bigger fund um, that you're going to, you know, it's going to take more time to deploy that capital. It could take more. It could take more. So in this case, we're going to say the investment period is two to four years. The holding period is five to seven. Now I have default information for the windup period because it's, you know, if you're going to be winding up the, the fund, um, you're probably going to want to wind it up as quickly as possible. And so that typically takes um, about two, you know, depending on how big the fund is, depending on how many assets, it could take anywhere from, from a year to two years. Um, but we can always extend that out. I, I don't ask that question here because um, it's sort of a, a general sort of rule of thumb that it, it takes about one to two years. But again, we can always extend it out if we need to. Um, so the next questions are about the specific deal criteria. If, if this was an identified deal or if this was a feeder fund, um, we would ask a different, we would, we would ask this specific question a different way. Um, but because this is uh, because this is a fund, what we want to know and what you want to tell your investors is, hey, here's our deal criteria. Um, we're going to stick, we're going to stick to this mandate. And, you know, you, you can step outside that mandate, but not too far, right? So for example, if you say, hey, you know, we're going to be investing in value add multifamily or um uh or you know we're going to be doing you know investing in cash flowing self-storage then that that should really be your mandate but if you say hey we, we got this great mobile home that we that we found came across our desk um and we want to do you know we want to purchase it maybe if you know talk to your investors you want to you probably want to do some sort of notice to the investors that hey this is outside our mandate but it's still uh within our within our risk parameter, it's still within, you know, basically you told us that you wanted, you know, cash flowing income or cash flowing, you know, you wanted us to, to purchase cash flowing assets. This is cash flowing, um, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, you can do that. All right. But again, I would, I would re really recommend sending a notice to investors that you're, you're stepping outside that mandate, but we want to tell investors what that mandate is. So we want to know your specific deal criteria, and this is extremely important. What, where are you going to, where are you going to be investing? How are you going to, you know, uh, what type of assets? Your investment strategy is it going to be value add apartments? Is it going to be, you know, developing mixed use? Uh, what what's the investment strategy? And and why do you? And then your investment thesis. Why do you think that that's a good idea? And so you can type it out here, um, or if you have it drafted up on a Word document, which you know I, I recommend that before you start a fund specifically, you do have these kind of things already hashed out with you and your partners, uh, and and ideally also with some of your investors as well. Um, see what they want and and see how they, you know, what what would look good to them. But uh, so if you already have that drafted up, you can also just drop it at, in a file here, and I'll I'll get that. And then, of course, I ask uh, if you'll be hiring a property manager, and I'll be adding to this. For example, if you're going to be doing construction, you'll you'll also, you know, we'll add: Are you going to be the construction manager? Are you going to be the developer? Things like that, because the SEC in their guidance requires that any contract, any major contract that you have uh, between the company and and yourself as a sponsor or an affiliate, even if it's not the management company, uh, you need to disclose that. Typically, in most of these deals, um, the most likely 
scenarios that if you're, you know, if you have one of these major contracts, it's going to come as a property manager or a developer or a construction manager. Um, and so we want to disclose that here. I just ask about the property manager and, uh, you know, if, if you're not, so I ask if it's owned and or operated by one of the sponsors. Um, if, if it's not, you know, you don't, in my opinion, and, and some people just go ahead and disclose it anyways, certainly not wrong to do that. But SEC's guidance does not require that you disclose the property or, you know, disclose every, um, you know, non, non-affiliated um, contract, but certainly doesn't, doesn't hurt to do so. But in this case, I'm just going to say no. Um, and you see that I don't ask uh, who the, who the property manager is, but if you are going to be um, <clears throat> managing the property, then I do ask for the specific name because we need to disclose um, who that, who that, who the property management fee is going to go to. So that is the the business plan. And finally to, well, not finally, but um, the most exciting part, we got two more, two more sections. Um, but the most exciting part for me, probably for most people is the distributions. So because we said that there are multiple investors, um, this, this page pops up. If we said there wasn't going to be multiple investors, we, you know, uh, it would have a different, um, a different page would, would show up. But um, this is where, um, and we'll, we'll talk about the specific terms here. So the so I'm asking the first question is, will you have a preferred return? Uh, preferred return we talked about last week, and some of you guys might might already know this, but um, it is it's not an interest rate, but you can think of it as sort of an interest rate. Investor, if you give me a hundred thousand dollars, then I I will give you the first seven percent. I'll give you the first of all distributions until you hit a seven percent return on that $100,000. That's typically a preferred return. Now it's, again, it's not an interest rate because if you don't have the, the cash available to make that, um, to, to pay that 7% or whatever that percentage ends up being, then it's not owed to the investor, right? Um, as opposed to say an interest rate where if you don't pay that interest rate, then they, then they have recourse. They could foreclose on the property or something like that. So so it's not quite an interest rate, but I think that's the best way to think of it. Um, so the first question, but but there's several parts of this of this preferred return that we need to think about. First, is it going to be based off unrecovered capital contributions, or is it going to be based off initial uh, capital contributions? What that means is, let's say that if if you say, hey, I'm basing it off initial capital contributions right here, that means if I invested a hundred thousand dollars, then I am entitled to 7% of $100,000, no matter how much, how, how much other, um, how, how much, uh, how, the amount of other distributions that I get. Whereas if it's based on unrecovered capital contributions, um, let's say that we have a capital event where we refinance a, we, we, we refinance a deal and I, and I use those capital proceeds to pay the investor back, say $50,000 of their $100,000 initial investment. If I say per, the preferred return is based off the unrecovered capital contributions, what I'm saying is that the, um, that I am going to pay, um, I'm going to pay you only 50, 7% of $50,000, not 7% of $100,000. If it's unrecovered, but if I have a if I have a capital uh, if I have a capital event, we get refinance proceeds. I pay you fifty thousand dollars, and so you only so your capital account is reduced by fifty thousand um, dollars. But I'm still paying on the initial capital contributions. Then I still have to pay you seven percent of one hundred percent. Excuse me, seven percent of one hundred thousand um, dollars. So that's important. That's really important to know 
how you're, you know, what the pref is paid, um, is based off of. The other thing is, is it compounding or non-compounding? Uh, again, is it simple? And, you know, essentially you can think of it as a simple interest versus compounding interest. Um, I would say that the most common is non-compounding. I I've never, I've personally never worked, um, yeah, I don't think I've ever worked on a deal and I've, I've done hundreds of these. I've never worked on a deal where it was compounding. However, last week I, I told you about a, uh, a, a website where I learned um, uh, where I learned how to underwrite deals and their model initially was uh, for compounding interest. I thought that was interesting, but uh, so, and I had to reorganize it to where I made the, the pref not compounding. The other question is, is it cumulative or non-cumulative? In other words, um, if I don't, if I'm not able to make the payment, uh, if I'm not able to pay you uh, 7%, uh, 7% per, uh, pref on your $100,000 in year one, does that, whatever that deficiency is, does that carry over to the second year? So let's say I paid 0% zero, 0 on that $100,000. Do I now owe 14% in the second year or do I just owe 7%? If it's cumulative, then I owe 14%. If it's non-cumulative, then I only owe 7%. Um, and again, because this is a multi multi-investor class, um, investment, you're going to have multiple investors. My next question is, well, do you want to give different investors different preferred returns? And, uh, in this case, I said, yes, just cause I, you know, I want to show the, the complexity of, of, of how complex these can get. Um, and so each, each investor is going to get a different preferred return. And there, there's a couple ways you can structure this. The, the default way is that, the class A1 gets the priority pref, and then it goes down to A2 and to A3. There's also a way that you can structure it to where everybody gets a sort of um, the any any available cash flow will go into separate buckets, and one will get paid, and and and, uh, and basically all the all the prefs will get paid simultaneously from those buckets. Um, but the default is that class A1 gets paid first, that their pref first, class A2 and then class A3. And then, uh, then I ask, you know, if you have, if you are doing a class A one, what's the, what's their pref? Class A two, what's their pref? Class A three, what's, what's their pref? And so I've just got here nine, eight, and seven. And then, will you be uh, splitting distributions above the PR, above the pref, preferred return, with investors? I answered here yes. And if that's the case, you know, if, if we said no, then that would be it. But if that's the case, next question I want to know is. Are you going to treat cash flow during operations as a return of investors' capital or a return on investment? Again, this is really this is I don't you know you could talk to talk to a CPA as to whether this is really um, really a, a huge difference because because ultimately the investors are going to get the same amount no matter what. But it does matter as far as how their how their capital is going to get treated from a tax perspective. And so if you're going to say hey um, during operations. We're going to give investors. We're going to get. You know, we're going to make distributions of operating cash flow. And, and by the way, let me. I say it here, but we do make it. We distinguish between cash flow during operations and proceeds during a capital event. So during a refinance or a sale of the property, or even during an insurance. You know, an insurance claim. Uh, those would be capital proceeds. But during operations, um, we say, hey, we're going to give the, this cash flow of, from operations to investors. How is that? Is that going to be a return of? of their capital or on, on their investment. Almost always it's going to be a return on investment. However, I have seen, um, and it does happen to, you know, enough for me to have distinguished, to make, make this distinguish. Um, I have seen it where, where people want to treat it as a return of 
capital. And one, one of the arguments for that, not sure if I agree with it or not, but a lot of people say, well, if I can return investors capital, if they can get the first hundred thousand dollars, um, then, or, you know, let's say an investor gets, brings in a hundred thousand, if, if they can get their hundred thousand dollars paid off, then, um, then everything else after that is an, an infinite return. Again, I don't, I don't love that argument because it turns out to be the same amount either way. It's all semantics, but uh, that's why a lot of people like to like to say, Hey, I want to return investors capital first. Now the problem with now how we have it set up is that you're still going to split it say 70, 30 um, in the example that we used earlier, if, it, if it's a 70, 30 split. So you're, you as a sponsor are still going to get 30%. Uh, of of whatever distributions are available, which means you know, I don't often see it where investors get a hundred percent of their capital returned first during operations. Obviously, you know, during during capital proceeds they do, but during operations you don't typically see that because otherwise you could be waiting three, four, five years as a, as a sponsor before you see any any of your promote. Right. And so people typically don't say, hey, during operations, I'm going to pay 100% to investors before they get their capital back. And then I'm going to take the 70 30 split. You typically don't see that. Uh, I have seen it, but, um, you know, the investor, unfortunately, and he told me this um, afterwards, he's like, man, I'm, I'm not seeing any capital until we sell the property. So uh, I typically don't recommend during operations, at least paying back investors' capital, giving 100% of operating cash flow to investors first. I, I typically say, hey, if, if you want to treat this as a return of the investor's capital, then still do the 70-30 split. But that 70% that's going to investors is just going to be treated as a return on capital or of, of capital, excuse me. So here we have that question. And so we're just going to say it's a return on investment. And then will you be providing different investor classes with different splits? And there are two ways you can do this. Um, in other words, you could just say, hey, different investors get a different pref. And that's it. And then everything else just gets split 70-30 to all investors. Um, or you could say, hey, um, investors are going to do, um, and of course we could say no here. And then it would just ask, you know, what do investors get? What do sponsors get, et cetera. But here there's two different ways. You can say either all the distributions go into separate buckets, class A1 bucket, class A2 bucket, class A3 bucket. So the splits are simultaneous. Or you can say, hey, we have... Um, uh, we have, uh, you know, the first, the first, per, you know, the, the first is going to go, or all the distributions are going to go to class A1 until they hit a certain, uh, a certain hurdle rate. And then the next set is going to go to uh, the A2, then A3, and then whatever's left over is going to go to class B. So there's those different ways of doing that. Um, so here, I just, I basically break that down. I give you the different options. And, and by the way, this isn't all exclusive. Um, it's, pretty lengthy, but there's, there's, there's a thousand ways that you can structure this. These are just the the ones that I've come across. And these are like the ones 90% of my, my clients use, but that you can always say, Hey, I want it structured differently. And of course we have an option down all the way down here where you can explain uh, that option or, or how you want to structure it. But in this case, I'm going to say, Hey, I want to give different priority to different classes. And so we have class A1, class A2, class A3, um, who are all going to get different priorities. Uh, of the split that that class A one is going to get, they're going to get seventy percent uh, of all cash flow. The, the other thirty percent is going to go to class B um, until the class A one members hit a twenty uh, percent uh, until they they hit twenty percent 
Um, and then we're going to ask 20% of what it's usually an IRR or cash on cash or something, 20% of something. Um, once they hit that, then it's going to go, it's going to go to class A2. It's going to be split 60, 40, um, till they hit a 17% IRR. And then class A3 is going to get 50, 50. Um, and then the rest is going to go to class A3, class A3. It's going to get fit, split 50% to class A3, 50% to uh, sponsors till they hit a 15% IRR. And then here I say, well, what, you know, again, what, what's the basis? Uh, it's typically IRR, but you can also use average annual return, cash on cash, or if you have some other metric that you want to hit, you can, you can put that here. But in this case, I'm just going to say IRR internal rate of return. And this is the, the last one. I appreciate you guys sticking with me. Um, I know it, it can be so, so daunting in the weeds, but this is just so important when it comes to uh, disclosures and understanding the deal and, and uh, you know, just telling, telling investors how it's done. Um, true up provisions so um here and i actually have a, a video i'm, I'm not going to play this um i'm actually really <laughs> it's kind of uh nerdy of me but I, i'm very proud of myself to that i i just shot this video yesterday and i finally learned how to how to upload this video into the questionnaire so for anybody who is interested if you work with me you'll see this video i can also send it to you um liz i can i can probably send it to you so i don't take up more time going through it but um yeah, well, uh, it basically talks about the timing of investors capital, how to how to account for that. I do have it explained up here, but basically, let's say you have an investor one coming in coming in, in in January, right? And you start deploying capital in February, and then another investor comes in in November, and you give distributions in December, right? Let's say both investor one and investor two both contribute a hundred thousand dollars, but should investor two get the same amount? of distributions as investor one, because investor one has been, you know, in the deal much longer, right? Investor two has only been in for one, one month. How do you account for that? There's two, dip, two uh, typically two different ways, either increase the share, the share price so that, uh, so investor one is not diluted as much because investor two's money doesn't go as far. So increase the share price um, or prorate the distributions. Um, the difference is that one um, increasing the share price is um, is pretty straightforward. I mean, it's pretty easy to 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 conceptualize. Whereas prorating distributions, you know, you probably have to talk to your CPA. Again, I have a I have a spreadsheet, and this this uh, this video in here does explain everything on, on how to how to set that up. But um, yeah, I have talked to at least one CPA who was like, "Oh yeah, I, my system isn't set up for that, so now I have to go in and redo my system to to have it set up for that." Um, but, but prorating distributions, in my opinion, is the way to go. Um, again, I can, I can send Liz the, uh, that, this video, um, and you guys can watch it on, on another time, but, but again, a, a lot of bigger, uh, funds do increase share price based off something called net asset value, <clears throat> rather based on an increase of net asset value, um, uh, which means that basically if in month one, uh, your net asset value was, a million. And then in month two, it was, uh, you know, one, 1.1 1. 1 million. Then you could say, okay, well, it increased by this percentage. Therefore the share price is going to increase by that percentage. You can also arbitrarily, and this is probably the easiest way to do it. Um, even beyond increasing share price based off, off nav or your prorating distributions, the easiest way to increase share price is just applying a, a, an arbitrary, uh, an arbitrary increase either by a specific dollar amount or a specific percentage. Um, the problem with, and, and again, I, I give you an option to choose from all three of those. 
Um, and it's again, it's not exclusive options. I've seen some very complicated ways of of doing this, of of uh, creating true up mechanics. Some of them are even things that took me a long time to understand. But these are the most most basic and, and the most popular ways I think I've I've seen it. Um, but uh, the increasing share price based off uh, arbitrary, um, you know, an arbitrary amount uh, has the risk of even though it's a lot easier than than both the other ones that I mentioned, it has the risk of um, un, unfairly diluting either investor one or investor two, because either investor two is paying too much for the shares or they're paying too little and buying more shares than they, they would otherwise be able to if it was based off something uh, like net asset value. So with all that said, um, in this case, because it's a fund, I'm, I'm anticipating that I'm going to be making investments for two to four years. I'm going to say, yes, I'm going to be getting investments for at least two years. Therefore, I do want to prorate distributions based on timing. Um, so what I've done, and, and I, I actually talked to Liz right before this call, and I was like, man, I'm kind of nervous to share this because um, I've gotten feedback both from lawyers and uh, from prospective clients that what I've done can potentially devalue the, the service that I provide. Um, because what I've done, and I'm just, I'll just be, be quite frank with you guys. I've automated these documents so that every one of these questions uh, affects my, my template documents in a certain way. And these aren't the kind of templates that you're just going to rip offline and, and fill in the blanks. I'm going to share, <laughs> I'm going to share the, the back end of this just to show you how complex this is, where, where certain words, certain phrases, everything changes based on how you answer. Um, and then we're going to go through if, um, so this is kind of how the sausage is made. All right. So all of this, all the colors are, are basically different coding that I have put into the, the documents um, based off all hundreds of deals that I've done. It's taken thousands of iterations. I still take at least once a week to update this, to, to fix, you know, to add stuff based off uh, new information that comes out by the SEC or uh, new, new research information that I go through. Uh, I'm constantly building this out. But as you can see, this is not one of those things where you can just, you know, go online. I mean, especially this is the waterfall section right here. It's almost four pages long, has over 150 variables. Um, you know, this is one of those things where it's, um, you know, it allows me to based off of what, of what, how you guys answer, what you guys want in your deal. Um, these documents are able to, to be generated at a much, at a much faster rate, but also, and I think this is the important thing at a much more accurate rate. I remember the last, the last law firm I worked for, I came in at, at sort of a tail end where they were just kind of, they had just onboarded a, a lot of new clients. And at the time they were just using paralegals to, to do a lot of their drafting, if I'm being honest. And I spent, I spent most of my days fixing the errors in those because clients would come back and say, Hey, you got this wrong. You got that wrong. Hey, you missed this. And so I spent most of my time just fixing those errors. And then the, the rest of my you know, 15 hour days was spent trying to, trying to take care of new clients and, and get new documents out. Um, so this system I, I believe is, is a much better and, and I'll actually um, show you the last thing in here, which is the generated documents. Okay. Yes. So as, as you can see, we have the minimum offering amount without, you know, we said it's going to be a million dollars is the minimum. 10 million is the maximum. 50,000 is the minimum. And this is, this is all based off of SEC, this is very, very uh, closely, this, this aligned uh, uh, as closely as possible with, uh, with SEC's guideline and, and where you can look up uh, the SEC's guideline uh, is SEC guide five is what most real estate PPMs are based off of. But all of these terms, 
all of this is based off of, right? We have the class A1, class A2. We have the class A, A, uh, A2 preferred return. We had the class A3 preferred return. Um, we have all of this. And then I'm just going to go through quickly and show you some of the things that we, that are input into here based off the answers that we gave, right? We had the class A1 uh, con required contributions, how many shares they need to purchase um, that flows from your, from the questions. Uh, we talk about the um, the holding periods, the the wind up period, all that stuff for for the fund. Um, and then I'm going to show you the and then here's the fun part, right? Here's the distributions of cash flow, um, right? Class A one goes to Class A one until they hit the nine percent. Class A two uh, until they receive the eight percent pref. Class A three until they hit the seven percent. Then it goes seventy thirty until the twenty percent IRR is hit. Sixty percent to to Class A two members until they et cetera, et cetera. So this is extremely, you know, this is one of the most advanced, I mean, maybe I'm bragging a little bit, but uh, so one, oh yeah, we got the, we have proration, uh, the proration of distributions with an example of how it works uh, right here. Um, you know, again, patting myself a little bit on the back here. Uh, I apologize if that comes off annoying, but this is one of the most advanced systems that systems that I've, you know, drafting systems that I've come across. This is not like legal zoom or anything like that. Uh, where they have kind of general information. This is very specific to your to your deal. If you remember, Steven Stolinski was 50% owner, John Doe, 50% owner. Um, acquisition fees are all all here, you know. Um, so that's um, yeah, so that's my system, you know, and and so it just provides for um it, it just allows for us to reduce human error um and um and improve efficiencies and improve quality of product. I mean, I, I've gone through hundreds of hundreds of PPMs comparing what I'm doing with what other attorneys are doing. And, and you know, we are always doing, you know, just improving uh, based off what we're seeing out in the marketplace and, and what the SEC is, is uh, requiring and, and things like that. So it's a higher quality of product, faster turnaround time, lower, lower human error rate. Um, and I'm just, I'm really excited to share it. Um, I, I will say it's, I, I don't, I still charge uh, market rates for my services and, and people I have had pushback saying, well, it doesn't take you that long, but I, and this is the part about value that I mentioned earlier is that value should, should never be based on time. It should be based off of the, the product produced or, or rather the, 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 the value that the product inherently, uh, holds. And so this, in my opinion, is a very valuable product that most law firms don't have. And, um, and yeah, Lee, Lee, I see, I see your comment. Yeah. Expertise matters. Right. I mean, it's, it's all about, um, what, you know, anyways, I'll, I'll get off my soapbox. I was, uh, I can go on for, for a while. Right. I mean, as, as real estate investors, we know that, you know, if you have a, if you have a space, if you have a real estate, uh, a tenant is not, is not paying you their rent based on how much time you have, um, on, you know, put into the, into the property They they do it based off of the, um, the space that you provide. Right. Um, so anyways, uh, that's what I would just like to, to share. <laughs> I appreciate you guys, um, uh, sticking it out with me and, and, and hearing me out. Uh, really appreciate it. Uh, but that's, that's all I got.